always goof up the microphone switch. I don't know why that is. Every time, Chris. Yeah, I'm sure you did. One of these days, I'll figure out how microphones work. Good morning. I'm glad y'all are with us today. I'm so glad to have you here in the house of the Lord to hear the word of the Lord. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, Chris and I have been preaching through the letters of, the, to, uh, of Paul to the church at Corinth. We're going to be 1 Corinthians, and then we're also going to go through 2 Corinthians, and then um, as we, we finish that, then we're going to move on to Ezra and Nehemiah afterward, and so we're excited about the sermon series that we have coming up here at Calvary Heights, and want to encourage folks to be kind of reading ahead. What? It's okay. You can, you can pre, pre-up some of that, and it's good for us. But today we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I was sharing with a, a friend just before the service started that, uh, you know, there's, there's some different ways you can look at 1 Corinthians 15. Um, there's, I can do it in three different sermons because there's kind of three chunks, but it's also one big Pauline thought. So you can do it in one sermon. And, and I joked and I said, I chose violence. We're going to go through 1 Corinthians 15 uh, in one big sermon. It is a lot of scripture to take in today, but we'll be okay. I'm sure the, the Spirit will work in our lives and we can um, hear, the, hear the word just fine. So let's go ahead. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have it, it's up on the screen. You'll be able to see it there. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted, because, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though, I was, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and, our faith, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Sorry, let me try verse 15 again. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people 
most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to the God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected uh, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subject under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all why are people baptized on their behalf why are we in danger every hour i protest brothers by my pride in you which i have in christ jesus our lord i die every day what do i gain if i hump if i humanly speaking i fought with beasts at ephesus if the dead are not raised let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is, one of, is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for stars different from star for stars differ for differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And is the man of And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, 
but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must be put on it must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this time we have to be uh, in your word today. I thank you for uh, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the hope that comes from the resurrection. Father, I pray that as we, we, we are in your word today, that, that, that it be you speaking uh, through me, that you would put me aside and in spite of me, that, that people would, would learn and, and see how important the hope of resurrection is in our lives. Father, I pray that you would just really speak to our hearts, you would challenge us, you would convict us, and draw us close to you through the hearing of your word. And it's in Jesus' precious and holy name I pray. Amen. There's a lot to take in, and I appreciate that there's a lot to take in here. But chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is kind of the last major point that the Holy Spirit is making through Paul before he concludes the letter. Chapter 16 is, hey, don't forget that there's an offering I'm taking up because I'm going to Jerusalem and I want to do these things. And he's, he's going to start kind of wrapping up his letter completely in chapter 16. And this is this big last major point that the Holy Spirit is making through him. And this may be the most important point and chapter within 1 Corinthians altogether. This is about how the centrality and the necessity of the resurrection is there. This is, this is about why we have a resurrected king. And, and it reminds us that our faith is, is useless and it's futile and, and it's pointless if the dead are not raised. This chapter is, is the key to the whole letter. And everything that we've been taught in chapters 12 through 14, really 11 through 14, about what it means to be mature and, and have godly worship that's orderly. Everything that we have that we've looked at in those chapters hinges on the fact that there's a bodily resurrection. Jesus' bodily resurrection is first and foremost. Then the believer as a consequence of Jesus' bodily resurrection. And this, this is the basis of the entire Christian faith. That the dead in Christ shall rise. Without the resurrection, there's, there's no hope. Without the resurrection, the gospel that we proclaim is an empty message. But with the resurrection, everything we have learned from 1 Corinthians so far, the reality of the Holy Spirit, the unifying power of the gospel, the, the, all of this that is, is this true and real work in the world, what else happening there, the, the changing of our lives and the lives of those we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with, all of that hinges on the resurrection. Now, Paul's, Paul's very likely writing this section of 1 Corinthians in response to the things um, in the Corinthian church that when they have written him letters, they've asked him in his letters that he's received from them, right? 
The people in Corinth were known for their intellectualism. That was a, a cultural thing within Corinth. And, and these were thinking and intelligent people. And thinking and intelligent people in the Greco-Roman world at the time, as Paul's writing this, believed that death snuffed out life completely. It was almost kind of like modern nihilism, where you just you die and you're gone. You live for this short period of time here on earth, and that's it. That, that's kind of what they thought. Or they had kind of this view of that when you died, you entered into this weird, shadowy, insubstantial existence in an underworld. They didn't really believe in a heaven. They didn't believe in um, an eternal life like we would think of it. They, they believed in this weird, ethereal, non-existence existence. Certainly not a physical body existence in the afterlife. And here Christianity comes along and it proclaims a bodily risen Savior, a bodily resurrected Savior. And, and it not just claims a bodily resurrected Savior, but it also claims that his followers will have a bodily resurrection as well. And, and, and this is kind of a laughable fairy tale fable-like concept to the educated and, and, and intellectuals within Corinth. So Paul has to deal with Corinthian believers' confusion at least and possibly denial of a bodily resurrection. The bodily resurrection of Christ and of Christ's believers is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. And Paul breaks this chapter into three sections. The first section is the truth behind the resurrection, and, and he's got evidence laid out for Christ's resurrection. The second section shows the connection between Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of believers. And the third section is about the nature of our resurrected bodies. So let's dive into that first section here, right? Verses 1 through 11. What we see is, is the his, historical real, reliability of Jesus' resurrection, Paul provides kind of some historical evidence for us to, to lay the foundation for the reasoning that all believers will be resurrected, right? Jesus' resurrection was the first step in the resurrection of all Christians who die before Christ's return. So Paul has taught this from, his, from the beginning of his ministry, that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised from the dead in, after three days, and this is all in accordance to Scripture, Paul, Paul even alludes to Old Testament Scripture as he's teaching this. It's not just Scripture that, that, he's, that he's heard, but he's, Paul takes the prophecies of Isaiah and, and Ezekiel, and he brings those in. He says, look, this is evidence. And then Paul says, not only that, Jesus appeared bodily after his resurrection. He first appeared to Peter, then to the other 12 apostles. Then Jesus appeared at one point in time, at one time, to 500 followers. Then he went on to appear to James. And then later, Jesus finally revealed himself to Paul. Okay. Now, now, the witnesses that are mentioned in verses 5 through 8, the interesting thing here is that Paul reminds us that at the time of the writing of, of 1 Corinthians, many of them were still alive. You could go have a conversation and a cup of coffee with those folks. Find out, hey, what's... Tell me about when you saw Jesus after he had been buried. I, I want to hear about this. I want to know. I want to, I want to hear. You could, you could have that conversation. 
There were individuals who could give that firsthand evidence to the truth of the resurrection. And the early church was, was really careful to preserve the historically accurate details about Jesus after the resurrection. And these individuals had respect among all believers, right? Peter, who preached at Pentecost, was there at the Transfiguration, right? The others of the Twelve, those, those ones that were close to Jesus during his ministry. James, Jesus' brother, who was then the head of the church in Jerusalem. And last, and even Paul uses this phrase, last and least, because of his persecution of the early church, was Paul. Right? And, and it's interesting, the way verse 8 reads, it seems that Paul believes that there are no other apostles chosen after him. He also recognizes the grace of God working in his life that has brought him from being a persecutor of the church to an apostle sent to carry the message of Jesus Christ and his salvation to the Gentiles. But think about that a moment. I, I, don't, I don't know everybody in the room, but most of us in this room did not grow up in Jewish households. If it weren't for the fact that, that Jesus called Paul to be an apostle after the resurrection, we would not have Christ in our lives. This grace drove Paul to work hard and to fully devote himself to the cause of Christ so that others may share in that grace that he had been given. You and I, as followers of Christ, now, today, in Martinsville, Indiana, are a direct result of the grace Paul was given because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Verses 12 through 34, we see this connection between Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of all believers. And, and it's a seamless connection between Christ's resurrection and the future resurrection of believers in the final day. Right? What was happening in, in Corinth wasn't that the church was denying Christ's resurrection. That wasn't what they were denying. They believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, and they believed that he was raised from the dead bodily. They questioned the resurrection of the believer. They were trying to, still trying to kind of jump some cultural hurdles to figure this thing out. They denied that Jesus' followers would be raised specifically in a bodily manner. That's, that's a tricky thing for even us. Like, like, I don't know, we kind of have a bad, I call it cartoon theology sometimes of heaven. We've watched enough Tom and Jerry and, and, and Bugs Bunny growing up that, that we think that it's these little angel-looking things with halos and wings plucking harps. And that's not what we see described in Scripture. And, and so the Corinthian church was having a hard time getting over their cultural hurdles the same way that we have a hard time getting over ours when it comes to what the Scriptures say about the resurrection of the dead. Verse 17 says this, And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So the, the proof that Jesus' death was an effective substitutionary sacrifice for sins lies in Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus has not been raised, then his death would not have paid for your sin. If Jesus' death did not pay for your sin, then there is no hope for life with God in heaven. 
See, that's the key, is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Every time I get to one of these, I just want to shout, but he was, he was, he was, he was raised from the dead, and that matters, and that's important. That yes, those believers who have died went to be with the Lord immediately after death, but they still await their bodily resurrection. A believer's eternal existence will be bodily, and it'll be without this kind of existence. As we think about it, without this kind of existence, without a bodily existence into the afterlife, into heaven, into eternity, there really isn't eternal life. That God's giving us that new. And we see that, that Jesus did raise from the dead and that there is hope in that, that we have hope there. His resurrection made a way for the resurrection of the believers as well. Right? Jesus is the true first fruits. I like that Paul uses that, talking about that idea of first fruits of the resurrection, that, that Jesus is the first of many to be raised from the dead. Now, hear me out on that one. That, I know that sounds weird. Jesus is the first of many to be raised from the dead. But you got to understand that all others are raised from the dead because of Christ and only through Christ. Christ's resurrection gives us a foretaste of what it will be like for us in eternity. See, when, when Christ returns, all His people, all those called by His name... All of those people from all time will receive resurrection bodies, right? Those bodies will will never again be subject to pain, will never again be subject to weakness, never again be subject to illness. Those resurrection bodies will never feel the sting of death that our earthly bodies feel. And Jesus is going to be stomping out those enemies. And the last enemy he stomps out, the last enemy that King Jesus destroys is death. And at the resurrection of all believers on the final day, the destruction of death will be complete. I think about that. Like, it's, it's almost a hard concept to wrap our minds around. I... I I think of how death seems to sometimes consume us. Over Christmas break, I went to a funeral. I've had an acquaintance and a friend recently pass. I spent six years ago, in nine months, I did six funerals. Death is something we just can't seem to escape here on earth. But through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, those of us who have surrendered our lives to him, those of us who are called by his name, will one day not understand death, that it'll be gone from us. That is incredible to me. So much hope in that. Let me get to verse 29. Verse 29 is odd. Let me... Look back at, at verse 29 here. Otherwise, what do people mean by baptizing on, by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay. Those of you who know our church, those of you who know who Chris and I 
Well, you know that we, we don't hide from these weird or odd passages very often. Now, we may walk out of there going, I don't exactly know what this means, but we don't, we don't shy away from stuff like this typically. Now, I, I will tell you what I've done in my research. We know that some interpreters through the centuries have thought that this refers to people being uh, baptized vicariously for, for those who were in Christ but died before they could be baptized. It seems like a really weird practice. So if Aunt Gertie comes to Christ and dies a couple weeks later before the church could baptize her, maybe there was somebody being baptized in her place. Seems a little weird. I'm not going to deny that. Okay? Now, understand that if that's the way some people interpret it, then what Paul's doing here is he's reporting on the, on, the, on the occurrence. He's not really condoning it, and he certainly, as we read this, does not command it. There's no biblical support that anyone can be saved apart from faith in Christ Jesus. And that's really something we need to take, it, take away from here, that, that this baptism doesn't do anything. Now, others interpret this, that Paul may be speaking about living Christians whose bodies are subject to death and decay, Right? That we are being baptized when we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That we are being baptized on behalf of our own dying bodies. You know, we don't often think about it, but life is terminal here. Right? That we're being baptized on behalf of our own dying bodies, showing hope for the resurrection to come. I'm going to lean that direction personally. Right? But whatever side you look at it, the idea of baptism or any other ordinance within the church, Lord's Supper, marriage, any of these things, or the practice of our faith at all, without the hope of being raised from the dead, any of these practices of our faith are pointless and they're useless. And he kind of continues here, right? Why are we in danger every hour? This weekend marks the 66th anniversary of the martyrdom of Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Nate Saint, and Roger Udarian at the hands of the Waldani people in Ecuador. Right? Men who, who moved their families and their lives out of a comfortable place to give people Jesus. I, I believe I believe Ed McCulley was the oldest of that group of men at 34. Think about that. All right, this, is, this is a risky endeavor to be sure. But understand this, that every time we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're taking some risks. And without the resurrection, these risks that you and I take for the sake of the gospel are meaningless and in vain. But because of the truth of the resurrection of Christ and his followers, those risks are more than worth our lives. What we have to gain makes the risks pale in comparison. I think about this story and I think about these men and their families and it's it's mind-blowing to me now knowing we have ministry partners 
within the Waldani people in Ecuador, proclaiming the gospel to other natives in the jungle in Ecuador at this time. The risks are worth it for the sake of the gospel. Specifically, Menkaye, the man who killed Jim Elliott and these other men, came to Christ shortly after and became the pastor of the First Waldani Church. The risks are worth it for the sake of the gospel. The resurrection gives hope for these things. Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Nate St. Roger Udarian didn't have their lives taken for the gospel. They gave their lives for the gospel. That's what we are called to do as well. And the resurrection gives us a hope and gives us an incentive in some regard to do that. That it's, that it's the power of the resurrection that says, I'm not, I'm not having my life taken, I'm having my life given for this. There's excitement in that. Verse 35 through the end of chapter 15, he begins to speak about the nature of our resurrected bodies. And the Corinthians did not understand how material bodies made of flesh and bone, subject to sickness and death and decay, could live eternally. And, and I get that. It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? But what Paul does here is he uses these illustrations from nature to explain that God will change the bodies of the deceased and, and make them appropriate for their new imperishable existence. We can't sow seed from a plant until that plant has died. And I have grown up a Morgan County boy, right? I have seen more corn and soybeans than I, I probably can, can imagine in my lifetime. But we don't bother to harvest even the dent corn that's only going to be go out to go be seed corn for, for feed and to actually seed other fields until the actual stalk's dead. It's brown, it's dried up, and it's shriveled. That's when we harvest. Same for beans, we don't harvest until it's dead and dried and, and, and crumbled up. And, and, and in some regard, that's how God makes us new. He waits. And when we're, we're dead here, our earthly shell is, is done, then we get something brand new. And in verses 42 and 43, there's this emphasis on, on this discontinuity of our current corruptible bodies and our future immortal bodies, that, that this is a shell, it's a, it's a husk, it's, it's going to go away. That what we have right now is, is sown in dishonor. It's born of sin, making these bodies ugly and rough. But our resurrection bodies will be raised in glory, right? Born new, without sin, because of the work of Christ making those bodies more attractive than we can imagine. Why are they so much more attractive than, than what we have now? Well, they will have no corruption in them. And because they have no corruption in them, they will, they will perfectly glorify God. There is nothing more beautiful than something that perfectly glorifies God. Nothing. 
And, and, and this is that contrast between the natural and the spiritual, right? The natural is temporary and the spiritual is eternal. Our natural bodies have a temporary lifespan. Our spiritual bodies have an eternal existence with God. God created Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. And Christ is the last Adam. His resurrection gave him a spiritual body. Therefore, it is imperishable. Right? When, when Paul uses this phrase, spiritual body, he doesn't mean some kind of immaterial, wispy, ghosty, Casper-like thing. That's not what he's talking about. Paul means a, physically, a, a physical body animated and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That our corruptible bodies cannot and will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and that's the need of the resurrection. There's nothing here that can go into there. And I get it. He even says it. This is a profound mystery. Right? Christians who are alive in the final days when the resurrection occurs will be transformed from a natural corrupt body to a spiritual immortal body. Just like those who are who are resurrected from the dead. And when that happens, death is swallowed up in victory. And, and that's the beauty of this. In, in, in Paul writing this small dissertation in chapter 15, he's really saying that this is the gospel message, that Jesus Christ died for sinners. He physically rose from the dead, declaring victory over sin and death. And those who surrender their lives to him through faith, share in that same victory. And, and in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, this is where the doctrine of the resurrection is taught most plainly. Nowhere else in, in Scripture is it drawn out so, so succinctly. The soul is immortal, and God's people will experience a, a perfect and everlasting life after a physical earthly death. And apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf, there's nothing that gives more hope than the promise of eternal life. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ already, I implore you, I beg you to share this hope of the resurrection with others. I, I urge you to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with those who need to hear it. I want you to tell others of the amazing work that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. That, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. That we are born sinful and rebellious before a holy and just God. And we cannot change that. We cannot do anything of our own accord. There's no works that we can do to impress God or earn His favor. But Jesus paid the penalty for you. That He came to earth in, in human flesh, lived a life that fully fulfilled the law of God, willingly paid the penalty for you. He died and was buried and was raised again, providing the only way to be in a right relationship with God. You confess your sinful, broken nature to Him. You ask Him to be forgiven. Turn to Jesus and trust in Him alone. And Jesus brings the promise of new life. His death brings that to us. 
And his resurrection brings us the eternal hope of heaven. That's the gospel message that you and I as as followers of Christ are called to tell others. Share the hope of the resurrection with those who need hope. The resurrection brings hope for our sanctification, our growing in the Lord. It brings hope for in our affliction when we're hurting and crying out. It brings hope in coping with the aging process. It brings hope for a new body once we have shed this deteriorating mortal shell. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a Christian, if you're on the edge, you're not sure where you're at, I'm going to ask you to surrender your life to Jesus. I I want you to have the hope of the resurrection that I have. I want you to have the assurance of eternity that I have. I I want to talk to you more about it. I want you to reach out to me. If you're watching online, drop us a comment in the comment section. Shoot us a direct message. Send us an email at office at Calvary Heights. We want to have a conversation about Jesus Christ with you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much. Thank you so much for this time we've had to be in your word. So much for this time we've had to be looking at the hope that comes from the resurrection of Christ. The hope that that as followers and believers that, that we share in that resurrection. That we may live eternally in your presence. Father, I pray that as as we've heard these words, that that they go out and and they touch the lives of those who've heard them. We would draw people close to you through that. Father, I ask for those who are questioning whether or not this Jesus is real, that there's really hope in all of this. Father, I pray that you would give them the courage in in this to the will to, to reach out to us to ask more questions. Father, we want to share that with them. Father, I pray that, that your word not fall void. We know that it doesn't. But that you would continue to work in the hearts of those who've heard it today. 